Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Some young people have started from zero without any continuity in their culture. But I would say we do not have any continuity back to the great cinema of the 20s and, and early 30s. But uh, still, we have one common thing with them. At that time, we had legitimate German cinema, and this is legitimate again. Guten Tag, Jenna. Guten Tag, mein Herr. Uh, we're doing Germany this week. I noticed. <laughs> Which is an interesting subject for discussion on a, uh, on a 60s cinema show, because for a good chunk of the 60s, Germany was a wasteland. <laughs> really, I mean, ask the Germans. It's the truth. They had a great cinema tradition in the in the silent era, you know, German expressionism, and and then, you know, the Nazis came and turned into propaganda, and then the Americans took over and said, you can't make any movies without us approving it first, and all the people who knew how to make movies died, and there really was not much at all going on in West German cinema in the 60s. And what there was was you know, really stodgy, like even worse than what the, the French New Wave folks were rebelling against, the, the cinema de papa. There's a similar situation in Germany where a lot of young filmmakers were saying, you know, not only is Papa's Kino terrible, but there hardly is any German cinema to speak of. So these uh, 26 young filmmakers got together at the short film festival in Oberhausen and uh, signed a manifesto saying that Papa's cinema is dead. We are going to create a new cinema. Yeah, the apparently movies had been in such a terrible state that when the Berlin Film Festival happened in 1961, they announced that there would be no federal film prize awarded that year because nothing had been made worthy of it. So that's <laughs> pretty mean-spirited, but also perhaps true. Have you seen much of this early period German, this 50s, 60s stuff that everyone hates? I haven't, I don't think I've seen much of it. No, I, I haven't seen any. It makes me want to watch it, knowing that they didn't want to give an award to any of it. I've seen some of those sissy films with Romy Schneider. And I mean, it's Austrian, but I assume that that's kind of typical of what was going on in Germany. Just these, these sappy romances featuring uh, princesses and, and that sort of thing. I mean, they're hugely popular, but nothing you'd call cinema. Yeah, when the powers that be say that your country isn't uh, producing any good cinema, you know that there's a problem. <laughs> so these 26 young filmmakers, most of whose names you've, you've probably never heard of, only a couple of them, Alexander Kluge and uh, Edgar Reitz, went on to become fairly well-known filmmakers. They mainly use this manifesto as an entry point into starting to you know, appeal to the West German state to get funding to allow young filmmakers to start making films. To a certain degree, they were successful. Alexander Kluge, who we're, we're going to talk about one of his films, was actually trained as a lawyer, so he was kind of right in the front lines here, trying to use his legal wiles to get money for filmmakers. And as I said, there he had some success. There's some funding that uh, that became available soon after, or, you know, a few years after, thanks to the work that these guys have, had done. And so by 1965-66, some of these state-funded features by young filmmakers started to show up. You know, and 
when this new new German cinema did arise, it wasn't this kind of unified stylistic thing. Mainly it was, at least how we think of new German cinema now, is mainly just focused on you know, a certain number of auteurs who all had their individual styles and it was just sort of, you know, this collection of, of interesting filmmaking personalities that, that became what we know of as New German Cinema. And in fact, it really wasn't until the 70s that this new wave, that this movement got a whole lot of recognition, uh, you know, with films by, uh, you know, Fassbinder and Herzog and uh, Wim Wenders going to international film festivals and, and playing in the States. I think it was 72 when, when the New York had its first New German Cinema Festival and all of these filmmakers were, were brand new to most people in, in the United States had never heard of, of any of these people, Herzog, Fassbender, even though they had made you know, quite a few movies already. Talking about the new German cinema in the 60s, what we're really talking about is the early films of a lot of filmmakers that uh, you know, went on to do more famous films. But a lot of what we watched for this episode are you know, some of my favorites by uh, you know, Herzog and, and Fassbender. So, uh, you know, these are all really good movies. They're just not necessarily the movies that these filmmakers are, are most famous for. They're also weirdly cohesive. There are certainly very similar themes that everyone seems to be really intensely interested in, and I would classify all of those as self-hatred. <laughs> yeah. As far as German society goes, and, and they all seem to be I, even more so than something like French New Wave, which I feel like definitely takes aim at itself, but also sort of gets lost in the malaise of life. In like the Polish cinema that we watched in our Polish art house episode, the Lod film school stuff seems a little bit more dreamy, a little more introspective. This German stuff is just, it's just self-flagellation. <laughs> yeah, it really is. I mean, they, you know, stylistically, these movies are all over the place. You know, they don't seem to have much in common, but they all do seem to address in one way or another, the sort of horror of, of this Nazi past. Like all these young filmmakers want to address this issue, this elephant in the room that uh, that none of the established filmmakers were willing to take on in any way. And it seemed like once the floodgates were open, that you know, most of these filmmakers said, okay, now that we can make movies, we're going to make the important movies that have been needing to be made for, uh, for years now. So... Uh, even when, when these movies aren't specifically about you know, the Third Reich, they still deal with the German attitude and the inability of the older generation to deal with their awful past. So the new German cinema began with a manifesto, just like you know, Cinema Novo in, in Brazil did, but it wasn't as specifically political. I mean, the aims of Rocha and those guys in Brazil were all very specifically political, you know, trying to capture, you know, what reality is for Brazilians and, you know, be critical of the government. And, and so they're very, you know, specifically political films. This was not the intention of the German filmmakers, but it sort of just ended up, you know, thematically, all of them having to do with the, you know, cruelty and, and you know, power dynamics and, you know, what... <laughs> what it was that was happening in Germany that could have allowed Nazism to happen. And it's interesting because when we talk about them going after the older generation's inability to speak openly about this in a way that seems to satisfy the older generation, quote unquote, here, I mean, this is their parents. 
the war is not even 20 years old at this point. But it's also interesting how this all sort of is coinciding at the end of the 60s on this sort of youth wave of rebellion. So not only do you have this criticism of the older generation, and, and which is deserved and interesting and necessary, but this is also kind of coinciding with that screw you, mom and dad, <laughs> you know, attitude of like, well, you know, we weren't even born or we were literally babies. So is this our guilt to have? Why should we feel shame for what our country did when we weren't even around? Yeah, if ever there was a society that deserved to have such a pronounced generation gap, it's Germany in the 60s. But the new German cinema is definitely inspired by the French New Wave. And uh, a couple of the filmmakers that we're going to be talking about, Jean-Marie Straub and Volker Schlondorf, started their careers you know, in France working on some of these French New Wave films. And they're sort of, uh, you know, you can, you can see some of the similarities. There's definitely an interest in Brechtian distancing effects and that sort of thing and and just turning their back on 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 traditions but uh the french new wave just sort of seemed like a natural outgrowth of this um you know younger generation wanting to prove themselves and, and set themselves apart from the, the previous generation and you know it stemmed from this the cinematech culture and article after article uh, in film journals discussing uh, the nature of cinema. So it wasn't like in France because there wasn't this whole cinema culture in, in Germany for this to rise from. So it was very conscious on the part of these filmmakers to sort of create something new and it didn't take hold right away. I mean, some of these filmmakers had some success, but uh, for the most part, it uh, after the, the mid-60s, when they, some of these movies first started showing up, they found that their funding was, was starting to run out because they didn't have the kind of box office success that they hoped. And so a lot of the older filmmakers were starting to use some of the state funding themselves and were getting more out of the, the state because their, their films were becoming were actually successful. You know, sex films and these rural romances and these uh, you know Edgar Wallace crime films and, and these sorts of things were... Uh, starting to grab up all the money that was supposed to be available for the young filmmakers. So uh, it was another fight after this first wave of, of movies to continue to, to get these films made. And actually, German TV was a big source of revenue. So a lot of these filmmakers sort of had a, a one foot in television and, and one foot in, uh, in theatrical releases just to keep their careers going and to be able to make the films that they wanted to make. But yeah, why, why don't we just jump right into uh, the first film on our list here, sometimes referred to as the first feature film of the new German cinema, and that's Not Reconciled, Nicht Versant, with the subtitle Only Violence Helps Where Violence Reigns. by uh, Jean-Marie Straub and uh, Danielle Ouillet. They're a they're husband and wife filmmaking team that uh, for all their future films, they're credited as co-directors. On this first film, it's, it's just uh, Jean-Marie who's credited as the director, but Danielle Ouillet was the producer, co-writer, you know, acts in this film. It's based on uh, the 1959 Heinrich Boll novel, Billiards at Half Past Nine. And uh, I really think it's it's kind of required to 
for you to read the book to make any sense out of this movie because at you know under an hour long it's just a series of things happening without much context at all and it's it's pretty hard to follow you have to you can't it's hard to tell which characters are which and and uh you know what what any of them are trying to do or what they're referring to i know you you kind of hated this, right? You definitely were, were complaining to me after you watched it. Hate is a strong word. Yeah. And way to tell on me about <laughs> texting you uh, my complaints. No, I, I mean, it's tough because I don't want to dunk on one of the few female filmmakers <laughs> um, that, we've, that we've been able to, to watch on this uh, program. But it's like, this is a movie that is very much the the point of the film is in the making of the film more than it is about its plot at all. It's definitely a movie that's about shaking up visually what it means to watch a film. It's about what words mean. It's about what images mean. It's, you know, it's amusing. It's this intellectual deep dive into momentum, violence. I mean, introspectiveness, I, 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 you know, it's, to me, it's just pretentious. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it reminded me quite a bit of 1984, the book, the Orwell book, which I think is just, if he had just written a pamphlet, it would have been so much better. Why did you write a book when you clearly don't have a plot other than like, here's some cool contradictions? <laughs> And like a I love solid, in a solid political stance. You love that book, dude. That book, yeah. I can't get that book. Doesn't do it for me whatsoever. I think about it a lot. It's a good like conceptual book. It has a great point. I think it's a, it's important. It's not that we shouldn't teach it, but I just think it's a it's thoroughly a slog to read. <laughs> and that's how I feel about this film. It's not fun to watch, and and it's not that things need to be fun. It's just that I hate the way that it's being told to me. <laughs> yeah. What this movie has going for it is it tells you right up front that it's a challenge. Like, you're going to have to work hard to get this movie. And because it's only an hour long, I took the challenge. I watched this movie the first time through. I had no idea what was happening. I was just trying to keep the name straight. And the, it's very consciously... It's This movie is about three generations of a family, Heinrich, Robert, and Joseph Fommel. But Straub and Houillet very specifically didn't do any, you know, set work or any period design in order that it's impossible to tell what era any of these different episodes that you're seeing are happening. I mean, you've got each of these three generations of Fommel, and, you know, you really just have to pay very close attention to the names and you know if they're talking about uh the kaiser you know it's uh it's happening during world war one and if they're talking about uh when, when robert's talking about being a, a demolitions expert you know he's talking about world war two um but they it's just the way that the these different episodes from the these guys lives are cut together there's just it's impossible to to see any like timeline but i enjoyed the challenge and as soon as i watched it i went and read about the heinrich ball's novel billiards at half past nine and uh, just tried to sort out who these characters were and what was happening and then i watched it again and enjoyed it so much more that's the advantage of it being just an hour long it's you can watch it twice and uh, and it's the length of a single movie so uh, 
So I could go through, <laughs> I don't know if it would be helpful to, to anybody for me to sort of say what is actually happening in this movie, but, but I think I've got a pretty good handle on it. I will say one thing. Did you know that the subtitles are inconsistent on this? And apparently that's on purpose. Really? The company that put this out uh, with the English subtitles, Grasshopper Film, someone on Letterboxd, Andrew Bick, who also made a Medium post about this because I was very curious about this. He complained to them and was like, hey, I watched this on Filmstruck when that was a thing. And they were, I don't understand why some of the subtitles were missing. And so apparently the filmmakers intentionally left them off because, quote, the subtitles follow two unorthodox principles. They are as literal as possible and certain sections are left untranslated. This represents a break within the film with the notion that the meaning of a text is in the words and their interpretation alone. Furthermore, the passages without subtitles allow audiences a chance to hear and see the film without reading. That's the essence of why I don't like this film. <laughs> there are large chunks of the film where it seems like a lot of either went untranslated or just it was greatly simplified. I had no idea that was intentional. I just thought that was maybe, you know, in the older days of subtitling, that uh, that was the, the common practice to summarize rather than translate literally. So I thought this was, may have been just an old translation of the film, but... Wow. A way to make an incomprehensible film even less comprehensible. That's the thing. But I, I really want to hear your breakdown of this because I'm very open to it. I would I would absolutely watch this again. I probably should have watched it again. As you said, it's not long. But when, when people intentionally make things difficult with no other point other than to say it's difficult because life's difficult or, you know, <laughs> like it's it's hard and confusing because life is hard and confusing. And it's like, fine, like, but like, fine. <laughs> it doesn't impress me. I, you know, it's just, okay. I can also get that by just reading the news. You know, I don't. it is funny how a character in this movie will in three lines will sum up the entire history of everything that's happened in the last 20 years. And then the movie will go on to spend 60 seconds showing, uh, you know, three people getting into a car. I mean, it's, it's definitely, it's it's meant to confound and and irritate and puzzle which i can get behind in many things i like experimental film to a degree it depends i guess how experimental it is but sometimes i really enjoy it certainly like art house films i like things that are confusing but just uh, you have to justify it in some way and i didn't feel that this movie justified it but i maybe i was wrong so please Let's get Bart's point-by-point -point guide of how to watch this movie. Well, I can't really explain why it was told the way it was told, but I can tell you what happens, basically. You've got Heinrich Fommel, who's a famous architect who builds St. Anthony's Abbey in Cologne, Germany. That's kind of on the, on the western border. And his son, Robert, is also an architect, but he, in World War II, becomes a demolitions expert and is commanded to destroy St. Anthony's Abbey, which he does. And then his son, Joseph, the third generation of architect, is commissioned to build St. Anthony's Abbey again. And that's sort of the structure that's at the core of this film. And you know everything else that happens is sort of you know, in relation to these these three generations of, of you know creating and destroying and building again, and it's you know some kind of metaphor for Germany. 
you know, how it has to keep rebuilding itself, I, I suppose. But uh, the other thing that's going on is this idea of, I mean, on a basic level, violence begets violence, but it seems to have to do with this specifically German lust for power and control that creates this atmosphere of destruction and then rebuilding and then destroying again and just this endless cycle of death and cruelty. The movie opens with Robert as a kid who's watching his friend Shrella get abused by these two other kids in his school, Netlinger and uh, Vacano, and um, he wonders, um, why are they being jerks to you? Are you a Jew? And he says, no, I'm a lamb. He's part of this sort of uh, cult of pacifism that Robert sort of becomes uh, engaged with. His, he actually ends up marrying the sister of, uh, of Shrella, Edith, who is a lamb. And so Robert is sort of connected to this cult of pacifism. And, and they see themselves as the answer to this ugliness, this violence that, that keeps this cruel atmosphere perpetuating in Germany. And they keep referring to this, how they'll never take the Buffalo Sacrament. And I, I had no idea what that was all about, so I looked it up. And it's it's just something that was made up for Bowles' novel. But it, it's uh, apparently it's just some this idea that Germans take this oath of violence and, and power and control and, and cruelty. The lambs see themselves as the antithesis of this accepted way of German uh, behavior, I guess. They see most Germans taking this Buffalo Sacrament, and then they'll never take it. They're, they're committed to pacifism. So, yeah, I mean, these are some of the elements in there. You sort of get hints of, of what it's all about the first time through. It's a little more clear the second time through. I mean, it sounds to me like it's pretty much just a lack of control is what you're meant to receive from having watched this to some degree, is, is, is at least at one of the main points of it. The, all of the acting in this is also like very intentionally wooden. There's not a lot of camera movement I, I just everything is it's sort of an anti-film <laughs> yeah and i guess that's the intention i mean part of the whole brechtian distancing thing and i i, I think it's also i don't know i know that uh straub and we are influenced by robert brisson and this is sort of taking yeah. that that brissonian okay. woodenness and staticness to <laughs> to an extreme I like this movie as a challenge, but it's not anything to watch for pleasure, for sure. I mean, again, it was it's interesting. I, I just found it pretentious. I could not get into this intellectually or otherwise. Their follow-up to this movie, their next feature in 1968, Chronicle of Anna Magdalena Bach, is probably their most famous film. It's still... <laughs> It's a tough watch, but at least you get a lot of nice Bach music in there, and, and you do get period costumes in that. And There's no story being told, really. I think that must be... My only experience with these directors are, are this movie and Chronicle of Anna Magdalena Bach. So I don't have much sense of what they're all about, but it is, it is, it's definitely anti-narrative and very all about stasis and just putting you in an atmosphere and... I would say the Bach movie is a better introduction to these filmmakers. They kind of earn your trust a bit with that movie, so it helped having seen that going into this one and knowing that there was something there. There's something worth digging out of Not Reconciled. So I was I was up for the challenge. But yeah, don't start with Not Reconciled when you're when you're delving into new German cinema or you'll probably stop right there. <laughs> Next up from the following year, we got uh, Volker Schlondorf's Young Torless. 
based on Robert Musil's, I guess, semi-autobiographical novel, The Confessions of Young Torless, produced by Louis Mal, who Volker Schlondorf worked for, was an assistant director for, he also worked with Alan René and Melville, and so he, his background was completely in the French New Wave. He actually moved back to Germany to make Young Torless. I think it might have been Louis Mal who suggested to him to, to make this film, and he so he wrote a, a screenplay and was really excited to, to get it off the ground and make it. He made quite a few German-language films, uh, probably culminating in, in The Tin Drum in 1979, which a lot of people see as the pinnacle of new German cinema. It's, at least it's the one that made the most money. Everybody has heard of The Tin Drum and, and his adaptation of Gunter Grass's novel, but he ended up making English language films like The Handmaid's Tale in the 80s was was Volker Schlondorf's. But Young Torless was his first film, and it's set in an Austrian boarding school, and uh, it's another movie about the tradition of cruelty in Germany. Uh, I love this movie. What did you think of it? It was just so beyond what I was expecting. <laughs> I also loved it, but it's just, it's so cruel. <laughs> I don't know. It reminded me a bit of if is sort of the natural one that I thought of as far as just vicious boarding schools. <laughs> and then it kind yeah. of reminded me of the strange one, which was from 57, which I know you love with Ben Gazzara. Yeah. Which is like a military school, which is very similar power dynamics of <laughs> boys being boys. <laughs> Sadomasochistic homoeroticism. <laughs> Right, Boy, boys being boys. <laughs> <laughs> so this it tells the story of Torless, who is escorted back to his Austrian boarding school outside Vienna, all boys school. You know, he's sort of been taken under the wing of uh, this, this Beinerberg, sort of big man on campus. You know, he must be connected to a lot of power and wealth, and so he's chung Torless the ropes and um, ends up taking him to. Bozena, the prostitute, and, you know, just making him part of the power elite in this boarding school. They've got another friend, uh, Bazzini, who loses his money gambling and borrows some money from one of the other friends, Reeting. And when uh, Bazzini can't pay Reeting back, Bazzini steals money from Beinerberg, and, you know, they figure out that it was Bazzini who did it. So Beinerberg and Reeting uh, sort of make... Bazzini, their slave, and so late at night, every night, they go up to their little attic crawl space and do whatever they tell him to do, and it uh, it's a lot of torture and rape and uh, and all sorts of nasty stuff. And Torless is not really participating in this much. He's more of an observer. He's really just sort of fascinated by how Bazzini is able to degrade himself, like why he accepts having to be a slave to these two creeps, you know, Torless doesn't help him at all. He's kind of disgusted by Bazzini. That's sort of the, the movie there. It's Torless watching while his friends torture this other kid. Right. He he observes it dispassionately, he says. Mm -hmm. uh, and they really torture Bazzini. They assault him. They stick a metal poker into his arm, like, fully... <laughs> That penetration may have been metaphorical. They straight up rape him in that attic several times. It's sort of explicit in the noises, but it's not explicit in the images. 
the the book. So like I had to look up what this book was, which is written in the early 1900s, which is interesting because of all the parallels in this film to Nazi Germany and dealing with, you know, the fallout of Nazi Germany. But the book is really explicit in the fact that everyone's engaging in this sadomasochistic homosexual rape of this other boy who is described in the book as being homosexual and then sort of enjoying it, which is is what it is for an early 1900s book. That doesn't come through in the movie. It doesn't. Really. Bazzini is, seems pretty unwilling. But he doesn't do anything to defend himself besides sort of pleading. He sort of very willingly goes into these situations. And then what's happening to him is, is left... I mean, it's just... It's always cruel, but it's a little bit left up to the imagination to whatever degree of cruelty you, you think it is. Which, quite frankly, even without rape, it, it would be just as vindictively evil. So, yeah. I, didn't, I mean, this was, I thought, a really great meditation on the system of violence. And on top of the system, but also the players, you know, the ease of violence and how, how simple it is to cross over into brutality when you have a supposed justification. This movie spends a lot of time, Torlis spends a lot of time being really intrigued by the concept of imaginary numbers in mathematics. And it's an interesting and, and strange part of the film because he goes to his professor and, and asks for more information, and his professor just doesn't really... He kind of just tells him you have to accept it. He says, uh, you know, have faith. <laughs> he says, everything is about feeling, even mathematics. Which is interesting because it's sort of his professor just not wanting to deal with explaining it to him because it's not necessary for him to do his homework. But then it gets interpreted in this weird way as applying mathematical logic to a situation that inherently has more than one outcome. So it's sort of using imaginary numbers in order to show how we can be simultaneously good and evil at the same time, with Torlis being this dispassionate observer. Yeah, I love the ambivalence of that whole scene where you're definitely on Torless's side. You're frustrated that the teacher won't explain to him how imaginary numbers could exist or what the point is. And part of it is because the teacher just has this dismissive attitude like, oh, you'll you'll figure it out in a few years. When you know when you learn more, you'll understand all about it. Just take it as an act of faith that, that it all makes sense eventually. But you realize that is exactly what you have to do with something like imaginary numbers. You just have to accept them as a fact, and you really don't understand what their point is or what their use is until you understand a lot more. So the teacher is being, like, as much as you don't want to be on the teacher's side, he's actually giving it to Torlis pretty straight. And it is sort of interesting how Torlis sort of extends that, that viewpoint, trying to understand how Bazzini can take this cruelty... Uh, he was willing to submit and how Beineberg and writing can be so, you know, seemingly his friends, but also be cruel. It's all this, this sort of gray area. This, you know, I, I think uh, Hannah Arendt was probably discussing the banality of evil right around the same time. But that's sort of the big conclusion that's drawn at the end of this movie is that you are not a good person or an evil person. It's, you know, sometimes you are, sometimes you're not. It's just this inability to see it in these solid mathematical terms as yes or no that Torlis is, has trouble with and, and finally sort of comes to this realization at, at the end. But the, the problem with that observation is complacency. It's passive complacency. And Torlis is, in my opinion, just as complicit in the torture, which, which is brought up in the film and, and acknowledged. But I think he's guilty. <laughs> 
I mean, it's not even that he's complicit in the torture. It's that I think he's as complicit as those doing the acts. Because just because you can be cruel doesn't mean you should be cruel. <laughs> I mean, call me crazy. But uh, the other part is there's that scene where Bassini comes to him and asks for help. He says, you were nice to me before. I don't understand. And Torlis finds himself basically just so caught up in the fervor and the system of perpetuating violence that he can't stand up for it and break it. And when he does eventually try to, of course, it's the world versus this one man. So in that way, it's arguably, you know, not going to go great for Torlis, but then again, you know, if, if only one man stands up, then what could happen then kind of thing, but... Yeah, I mean, the, his great revelation just results in him running away from it, not wanting to be a part of the society, but with National Socialism right around the corner, you know that he's going to be caught up in, in having to choose sides one way or another very soon, and that's what's so powerful about this movie, is it really gets you to understand the, the atmosphere of pre-Nazi Germany and, and what could have made this possible. The thing that gets me and what makes me hate Torless is that there's a final scene where he's sitting in a car smiling. You know, he's going away from it. Boy, what a lesson I learned. And I'm like, screw you. <laughs> yeah, well, he's got the superiority complex. Like, he's better than all of the students and all of the teachers. Like, he knows better than everybody now. And no, dummy, you're just running away from it. You're running away from something that you'll never be able to run away from. This was a great movie, and I would 100% recommend it. I think it's the type of film where knowing the plot that we just spoiled to a degree is not going to stop your enjoyment of this film. It was really, I mean, it, but it's intense. <laughs> and it's less than an hour and a half. This was the second time I'd seen it. I watched it for the first time about three years ago. I sat down to watch it this time, and it just flew by. Like, I couldn't believe it was over. It just absolutely absorbed me, and it was it was over like that. It covers a lot of ground in a short amount of time. I think I think it's really impressive in that respect, too. But the next movie is kind of a nice change, uh, at least from the doom and gloom, and, and very much French New Wave inspired stylistically, which is Yesterday Girl from which is directed by uh, Alexander Kluge and starring his sister, Alexandra Kluge. She's great. Hoping that both parents are named Alexander and Alex as well. This is actually the movie that Kluge is most famous for. He got a lot of attention for it. I think these days he's, he's better known as just a driving force behind new German cinema rather than for the movies that he made. But yeah, this one, it's about uh, Anita G., who runs away from East Germany because she thinks she can have a better go of it in West Germany, but she's arrested for stealing a cardigan, and when she's released, uh, her, her record sort of prevents her from very successfully finding work and, uh, and life for herself, the, the kind of life that she was hoping to have in West Germany. And uh, she ends up falling back into her old ways and taking on a series of jobs that are beneath her and you know, requires a certain amount of groveling and, and ass-kissing for her to continue with these sort of 
lousy jobs that she's able to land, and uh, so you don't blame her for quitting or, or sabotaging her, her chances of keeping these jobs. But it's kind of just a lively analysis of how uh, it's impossible to let go of your past. Her past keeps her from succeeding, and uh, clearly she's, she's as much a metaphor for Germany as she is for uh, just the situation of being a young person in Germany at that time. Totally. This was another one where, like, Torlis, which talks a lot about this idea of observing and feeling like you're, you're not part of the action when you are or not reconciled, shaking up the viewer to bring you into the moment and make you actually deal with what's actually happening. I feel like Yesterday Girl was completely just about showing a woman who is living in the moment and who is here and who's, who's acting on impulses, who is constantly distracted and who is feeling disconnected because nobody else around her is living in the same world as she is, even though they are physically on the same plane, <laughs> they're in the same room. But it, it feels very much like, you know, the West Germany in this film is just completely in a haze. They're all avoiding the topic of dealing with her as much as they're avoiding the topic of dealing with themselves. And so they end up continually scapegoating her as, well, she's not fitting in, you know, it's this sort of typical well, you're not making enough effort to fit in. And when she does, it goes ignored because nobody's looking at her. They look at her and they see a symbol of failure, otherness, or they think of her as a piece of meat. As a woman, they think of her as stupid because she's not from West Germany or she's, you know, a little bit disheveled. And, and oh, then there's so many allusions to dog training and conversations about the importance of, of conforming. <laughs> Which to me was, it was just especially ironic because there's also this sort of typical anti-communist rhetoric about how oh, the freedom's lost without capitalism. And here she's coming from the East. It's hard to watch this film and not see her as the only person who's alive. You know, everyone seems to treat her like this blank canvas so they can project all their insecurities and whatever onto her. She's whatever everyone sort of stereotypes her as. And yet she's the only one who seems to be awake. <laughs> And it's in the way that this film is shot, it's so jumpy. It's really quick editing. There's even this little animated sequences. It's, it's really lively and disconnected and, and real, actually. I think it's, it's just, it's really well done. Well, it's a, yeah, it's so, it's really scattershot. I mean, some of it is kind of following her story, but then you'll see scenes that might be part of her fantasies, you know, sort of fast motion scenes or that are, meant to be sort of comical that couldn't have possibly happened and you know just jumping around I, I mean I think in general it follows kind of a forward progression but there are just a lot of non sequiturs in there like a lot of things you're seeing and you're not sure why you're seeing it and it's the sort of thing where if you're on the filmmakers wavelength it works like the best Godard he'll just take the movie anywhere he wants just whatever kind of association he has whatever kind of stream of consciousness idea that you know trajectory he has for his film you're willing to follow him and you sort of get that oh this is yeah oh this is so godard for him to do that and with kluga i i maybe i need to watch more of his films but i wasn't always confident that i could trust that certain things were in this movie for a reason like some of it you know it just seemed like he had some oh i i 
I shot this bit of footage uh, a few months ago. Let me just throw it in the, <laughs> in the movie for no particular reason. I mean, it doesn't make the movie hard to watch, and, and you, you understand what's going on, but there's also this sort of, this trust in the audience to sort of just go along with his free associations, and it doesn't always work for me. Yeah, I mean, like, this is a great example of this is the kind of pretentious nonsense that I can get into. <laughs> <laughs> like I love the scene where she there's this, she has this fantasy of stepping on this woman's hand and it's a a glove filled with some kind of liquid and you know it doesn't really make sense it's not totally necessary but I loved it. <laughs> yeah, and I mean some of those non sequiturs like that definitely work and and are the most memorable parts but other times you're like what am I supposed to be getting out of this? Yeah, I mean I think when it gets too into her relationships with these other men it kind of lose esteem a bit actually i feel like i would much rather focus on her but in a weird way you actually you don't get too much about her either i mean she is a blank canvas but it's just in a in a world of sleepwalkers a blank canvas is like a bright white light of <laughs> shining interest yeah at a certain point she becomes the kept woman of this Peshoda, who's a some kind of minor politician who can't really take her out in public because he's got a wife, but everybody knows that he's seeing her anyway. And so you, you do get a big chunk of the movie where it's just her without a whole lot to do, just kind of hanging out in this apartment that this guy has gotten for her. And I mean, I think it's effective in that, you know, she has the freedom not to do whatever she wants and she doesn't know what to do with herself, which ends up being, you know, just as bad as these mind numbing jobs where she has to sell you know, language learning records on street corners or, or whatever. She knows what she doesn't want, but she also has no idea what she does want. And this movie really gets that across well and in an interesting way. I love that scene of her sitting on her suitcase in like a green space in the middle of a highway. And we get this really far shot of just a car passing her uh, with them sticking the camera out the window and it's just this weird, it's just, you just see her so far in the distance and, you know, it sort of pans around her as a, as they drive. But it was just a good shot. It sort of hammers home that alienation of this. I think it's also an interesting to sort of think of it as, in a weird way, as an immigrant movie, even though it's going from Germany to Germany. You know, she gets treated as if she were a foreigner, despite the fact that here she is in what was the same country not too long ago. I want to point out that there is my favorite elevator in this, the Paternoster lift. Oh, yeah. Which is also known as the lift of death in certain countries because it is banned. It is this like perpetual moving dumbwaiter, basically. Like it, it, it's in a loop. You just sort of jump onto it and then you go, go to the next floor. You don't press any buttons and it's perpetually moving so many people have died in this and uh, very recently even they, they stopped making them in the 70s i believe at least in germany but they do have a couple still around in, in germany and in, in czech republic and a couple of other countries in the same cluster and yeah people like will walk into them thinking that there is going to be something there and there's nothing and people will lose limbs because they didn't move in fast enough or they tried to bring in something that was not another human being and it's a glorious uh, and wonderful invention <laughs> and kluga definitely gets caught up in watching his sister go up and down on this thing because it's great holds on that, <laughs> holds on that for, for a bit too long but it's also sort of interesting to watch how not sexualized 
Anita is in this movie. And maybe, you know, part of it is that it's being filmed by her brother. Maybe it was just too conscious on my part. Oh, yeah, this is her brother shooting this movie. But, you know, she has some romantic encounters and plenty of opportunities to sexualize her. She kind of looks a bit like Anna Karina. Yeah, big I, time. I, at certain times, I, I forgot I was watching Alexandra Kluge and not uh, Anna Karina. But, yeah, just to see the difference between how Godard treats Karina in his movies and how <laughs> objectified and sexualized she is and how long he just spends just, like pouring over her face as opposed to how Kluga shoots his sister in this movie is kind of an interesting point of comparison. That is interesting. I, You know, I, there was a scene where she gets naked and it is shot very tastefully. <laughs> sort of uh, cut close enough and with a, a very contrasty shadow. So you, you can sort of see the outline of things, but you don't really see anything. And it, yeah, it certainly is not a sexy scene. I don't remember. She's taking a bath. Being very titillated. No. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So next on the list, we've got Signs of Life, the first film by Werner Herzog. amongst the directors we're watching for this episode and i'd never seen this before in a way i'm always kind of afraid of the first films of directors i like i always think they're going to be you know kind of student filmish or just you know not quite there almost movies that didn't have enough of a budget or enough of a vision to create something worth watching but signs of life is great I, i really enjoyed it i mean clearly it was made on a budget but that wasn't a detriment it's about this soldier during World War II, so he's a Nazi, but the fact that he's a Nazi really doesn't come into play at all in this movie. I, I can't think of another movie I've seen about Nazis where the war plays so little of a role in the movie and what these soldiers stand for. They just seem like you know, regular human beings. You totally forget that they're <laughs> you know, in the service of an army that's committing all sorts of atrocities because it really just never comes up. Strasek is injured in battle and he's sent to this small Greek island, uh, to this fortress where it's pretty clear he's not going to have any action, but he needs to keep an eye on some weapons that are there and protect them from the locals on mules or or something, but clearly just a, a cushy job where he's not supposed to do anything while he recovers from his head injury. And with him is his Greek wife, Nora, who was his nurse when he was injured, and, and they get married, and, and so she comes with him along with two other soldiers, uh, Meinhard and Becker. And so the movie is just a lot of just watching these four characters kill time on this uh, you know, small Greek island with nothing to do. It's pretty fascinating. I, it kind of reminded me of uh, early Jarmusch or something, and it's equally as funny. Like it's really kind of deadpan, tongue-in-cheek sort of stuff. The other two soldiers, uh, Meinhard is fascinated by making nature conform to his will. Like he creates this cockroach trap using uh, levers and and, uh, and science. And he, he wants to create a circle of a thousand caterpillars that they follow the tail of, <laughs> of all the other caterpillars in a circle for eternity. And and the other guy, Becker, is uh, this uh, this fort where they're stationed. There was an earthquake and it unearthed some ancient Greek 
tablets or something. So he spends the whole time trying to translate these tablets while Nora is, you know, cooks for these guys and does the housework and has an occupation for herself there. But uh, Strosek really just cannot figure out what to do with himself and is just, you know, maybe thanks to this head injury that he got, but he's just slowly going crazy. Not much of a plot here, but it, uh, he eventually goes full on Don Quixote. He, see, he right. sees some windmills and tilts at them and wages war on, on the sun with some fireworks. He rebels against dawn. Only light can fight light. Yeah, an entertaining little film. Yeah, I, I had never seen this and I was very impressed with this because, as you said, it's so dryly funny. But not, as most Herzog films, you don't really laugh out loud as much as you sort of solemnly nod and know that <laughs> that was one of the funnier things you've seen. To me, this was just, it was like, almost like a science experiment of a film because it just felt like a study on inhospitable environments. <laughs> <laughs> and it, the whole thing kind of plays off like a nature documentary in the best way, down to the cockroaches that are, are being trapped following the some sugar into a jar to the soldiers who are stuck guarding this island where nothing's happening with nothing to do it sort of plays off on how we get trapped in in rhythms you know or we get trapped falling for the same damn dumb things over and over again (laughs) in a lot of ways it reminded me of woman in the dunes which we watched in the last episode right it seems to have the same point like they're which there is no point. You just have to figure out a way to occupy your mind. Otherwise, humans have no reason to exist. Life has no purpose other than for us to figure out ways to occupy ourselves. Right. I mean, the only real justification he has for going crazy is just how serene everything is. It just decides to throw something at it. <laughs> Do you think there was any connection with this Strocek and the 1977 Strocek? They're both... Mad Men, I guess. I could almost see the this being the prequel in a way. It isn't, but they kind of look alike. I mean, I'd say maybe that's the name that Herzog chooses when he's making a movie about Mad Men, but every single one of his movies is about Mad Men, and they're not all named Strutzek, so... I <laughs> uh, <laughs> guess he just likes the name. Yeah, I don't know. It's weird. This it, It's sort of a, it's a pretty simple and straightforward film, I guess. There, there isn't too much to discuss uh, unless I just sort of get into all of the lines that tickled me, like the fact that he ends up, he shoots the entire town with rockets and, and all that uh, he gets for all of his hard work uh, trying to attack this town as a dead donkey in a scorched chair. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and and I also love the placid music that plays throughout this. It's just totally undercutting any of the action. Whenever he goes wild and, and there's just sort of this serene, like, well, there he goes getting wild again. You know, it's just, <laughs> it really feels like you're watching him behind glass. It's interesting how this movie is the only one we watch that's specifically about Nazis, but it doesn't seem to have as strong... The theme doesn't seem to be about trying to come to terms with a Nazi past. I almost wonder, I mean, clearly, just for plot reasons, these had to be soldiers. But it's also just so loaded for a German filmmaker to have German soldiers during World War II in a film. I knew there had to be some kind of commentary in there, but it really just, the the movie seems more philosophical. I, I mean, I think the connection there is going to just be that as a soldier, he should be fighting naturally this is his natural habitat and here he is in this serene town 
locked with a bunch of other people having been injured and he can't fight. So he basically has to come up with something else he can rail against, which then kind of removes humanity from the situation. But I do think that there is a degree. I mean, you can say there's a certain type of person who enjoys being in the army versus those who were just drafted into it. But part of when he goes crazy is when he, having been injured, he finally asks his superior, I actually want to go out there. I, I want, I'm, I'm bored. I want some action, which is when he sends him, he says, you can do this one patrol on the island. You're not, nothing's going to happen. You're not going to see anyone, but you know, you can just sort of get your legs again and, and see how it feels. And of course, this is the time where he runs into all those windmills and then just like starts shooting them like crazy and has to be subdued by his friend who later, you know, sort of tells on him and everyone's like worried about him. They say, hey, man, maybe you should, you know, leave. Like maybe the army isn't working out, which is when he then rebels against everyone. If there's any commentary here, which I agree, it's not a strong one uh, as far as war goes. But if there's any commentary, it's just in this idea of a soldier's place is to kill. And if he's not killing and if he's, you know, if you pick up a soldier and maybe just the irony of picking up a soldier and placing him into this totally happy and content and peaceful area and then not giving him any chance to readjust. And he's still on duty technically, but he's like a chicken being hypnotized. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No explanation. (laughs) So let's move on to Katzelmacher. Not actually the first film by Reiner Werner Fassbinder. It's his second feature, but I like it a whole lot more than his first movie, which is Love is Colder Than Death, uh, which is just kind of a low-budget gangster. I don't like that one. Pastiche. You've seen that one? Yeah, it didn't do anything for me. I could probably rewatch it, but... Yeah, it's got a few amusing parts, especially if you are invested in his cast of players. He always has the same few people show up in all of his movies, and it's always fun to watch them pop up in, in whatever it is. And it makes a mediocre movie seem uh, you know that much more entertaining, just seeing like Irm Herman show up or, or Kurt Robb show up in one of his films. Nothing much is happening, and then one of these people shows up, and you're loving it all of a sudden. <laughs> This, uh, it's based on the first play that Fassbinder produced the year before by the same title, Katzelmacher, although I guess that was a one-act, or it was much shorter anyway. He expanded it for the movie. It's about these bored city dwellers who sort of uh, couple and recouple. There's these eight young people who mostly just you know prop themselves up against the wall and... Uh, don't even chat they mostly just stare off into the distance and hang out and you know sometimes they'll match up and discuss their relationship a a little bit or or they'll come up with some plan to rob somebody and make a little money but mostly they just have nothing to do with themselves and they hang out in the tavern or against the wall and discuss what's uh what's going on with the members of the cast who aren't currently there with them or sometimes they'll they'll talk about uh, the others while they're standing right there it's a lot of like backstabbing and calling each other sluts and I don't, I don't even know how to describe this film but it's a whole lot of inactivity for the first half 
with these eight characters. And then a foreign worker shows up, Yorgos, played by Fassbinder himself. And all of a sudden, these eight characters are all kind of focused on him and, and how they don't like that he's here. And, and they're speculating on how Elizabeth, whose room he's staying in, is using him for sex. You know, Katzelmacher is actually a derogatory term for Mediterraneans having to do with their animalistic sexual appetites or something. But yeah, so they, you know, they sort of make these assumptions about Yorgos and how he's sleeping with whoever is not currently standing next to them at that particular time. One of them accuses Yorgos of raping her, even though you know, pushing her to the ground, and, and that sort of gets blown up into, you know, a sexual assault, and that's sort of the pattern of this movie. I think you used a, the game of telephone in, in your review, where you said that in discussions between each other, a small incident will get blown up bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, I mean, like, I guess, in a way, this almost feels naturally like it's coming out of the previous film, and also yesterday's girl, here's his rhythm of life film, but with the twist being that the repetitions and the rituals of the everyday are, are the cages that we are stuck in and we cannot get out of. This film is so static. And this is another great example of using the way that the film is made to reinforce the message of it and really get across the complete mindless numb world that these characters live in because they're all horrible. They're all awful, bitchy, jerky selfish full of contradictions totally abusive and beautiful and they all stand there perfectly framed as if they're <laughs> in a magazine shoot for every single frame of this film i don't think a single character in this film has an actual conversation with any of the other characters as you said it's this game of telephone one person says one thing and then another person turns around one person says oh i spoke to yorgos the other person turns around and says did you hear yorgos assaulted her <laughs> the next one says oh i heard that he um threw her to the ground and you know had his way with her you know it just it just keeps escalating because they don't have anything else to do they're all so bored and miserable and their lives are crap and <laughs> they're horrible people <laughs> and it's great it's brilliant for it there's no you're not following any character arcs here at all. I guess Hannah Scheigele, the most famous of Fassbinder's stable of actors, this is one of her first films. She sort of starts off as this needy woman who needs to be near Hans all the time and keeps demanding his uh, him express his commitment to her and, and that sort of thing. And once Yorgos shows up, she uh, actually is the only person who is, is decent to him and they become kind of a couple and, and so she maybe becomes the protagonist or a character with an arc a, a bit but you still you don't get inside her head at all you don't know what makes her tick you don't really get anything from any of these characters other than they're all pretty much equally awful with with nothing to do but uh complain about the immigrant problem in their city this felt timely to watch especially at a time where xenophobia is a big hot topic in europe and the u.s and yeah, it's just that you find these people where they, where they have nothing else in their lives except for anger at the fact that they have nothing, but they <laughs> don't realize that's what they're actually angry at. And then the second that one interloper shows up with good intentions and doing nothing wrong, it's suddenly everyone just funnels all of their attention into this one issue. Oh, if only this one person wasn't here, we could be back to the state of bliss we were in before. <laughs> Forgetting just how miserable they all were screaming at each other and assaulting each other anyhow. It is pretty clear that this movie is based on a play. It has a real staginess to it. 
It works, though. It does. It works. And it is just sort of a series of static images that might be hard to get all those different settings in a play, but it's just the way that the characters interact with each other or don't interact with each other. It feels very stagey. Like they're just talking over each other, talking with each other, but not communicating at all. Which is damning of Germany. You definitely don't get the sense that this is only an issue within this one group. It does feel very much like a, a statement on, you know, a lack of purpose with this unchecked, unspoken anger, either within them, at themselves, self-hatred for sure. Uh, and then this xenophobia that is unchecked and played off as being in some way defending Germany by assaulting somebody else, by attacking the new person in the group, the foreigner. And then, quite frankly, it, it's funny. Like, the Herzog film is, it has a great dry sense of humor. For as vicious as this is, and there's so many bizarre moments of violence where people sitting at a table and then just suddenly slapping each other in the face and, like, walking out, or poor Yorgos is just constantly, you know, ridiculed and he gets beaten up eventually. And yet... It's very clearly Fassbender's sensibility, his sense of humor, and these awful people exploiting each other and using each other, wanting love, but not uh, doing anything to deserve it or, or returning that love at all. And so thematically, and, and the sensibility is, is definitely something that you find in all 44 movies that Fassbender <laughs> made over 15 years before he died in 82. But this definitely feels like an early film in comparison to his later stuff. He was just so prolific that I think by 1971, this was his second film, by 1971 he'd made 10 films. And then kind of at that point with Beware of a Holy Whore, he sort of, that's his first movie that's really feels like what you consider is, is more mature Fassbinder. But yeah, I don't know. I'm tempted to go on and on about Fassbinder because he's one of my favorites, but... Why is he one of your favorites? Go into that. <laughs> I, I, I love cruelty, I guess. So this episode was made for you. Yeah, well, if you thought people treat each other really poorly in Katzelmacher, <laughs> we till you see hunting scenes from Lower Bavaria. Also made in 1969. This one's directed by Peter Fleischmann, who really wasn't one of the big names in the new German cinema, but this movie got a lot of attention. It's actually really well known. A lot of Germans have seen this. It was the West German submission for Best Picture in the Academy Awards. I don't think it was accepted, but for a movie that portrays your countrymen in such an awful way, Germans really seem to love this movie, and I can't quite understand why. I mean, I think it's a great film. It's based on a play by Martin Speer, who's actually the lead actor in this. Uh, plays Abram. It's set in the small town, and Abram has been off. No one knows where, but eventually it comes out that he was in jail, and then it eventually comes out that he was in jail for some kind of homosexual act. And then news spreads around the town. His mother, Barbara, is completely ashamed of him and, and won't talk about why he was gone or that he was in jail. But then once everybody finds out that Abram is gay, then you know everybody's talking about it. And, and Barbara wants Abram to leave and, and get out of her life and stop shaming her. She has to live in this town. And he's making it impossible for her. And um, 
it's just a you know this cast of really close-minded small town folk who are not particularly nice to each other but once they find out that abram is gay he sort of becomes the butt of all sorts of abuse from everybody in town particularly this one guy georg who's uh you know just sort of the sadistic clown who is uh, all up in everybody's business all the time, doing these awful pranks to everybody that he thinks are, are funny, but really just you know get crueler and crueler. And things just get worse when we find out that the girl, Hanalor, that Abram left behind in town before he went off to the city and then eventually then to jail, uh, we find out that she's pregnant with his child and everything gets a little out of control at that point. And uh, without spoiling too much, things turn out really badly for poor Abram. But this is a really damning movie. Of all these damning movies we're watching, this one is probably the most horrific portrait of German people. One of the most popular genres in the 50s for German film and in the 60s. One of the cloying genres of Papa's Kino is this Heimat film, these rural romances. So this movie is kind of turning that genre on its head. And uh, instead of these idealized, simple country folk who lead these pastoral lives. You get these cruel, closed-minded people who uh, hate anything that's uh, outside of their experience. This is every issue we've brought up in all of the previous films on steroids. <laughs> <laughs> you have miscommunication, you have cruelty, you have bullying, you have aimlessness, you have anger at the people who are actually accomplishing something. So it's a bit like the Fassbender film in that way, because Abram, he's not a perfect person, but he's going around helping everyone all the time. You know, he's there to do work. He's got mechanical skills, so he's helping everybody fix whatever they have broken. And, and you know, there are things that haven't worked in months. They're finally working now because Abram is around to fix them. But they, in spite of all that, they're still awful to him. Oh, yeah. All they do is berate him. And I mean, and just really evil, too. I, they get to the point. I mean, his, there's a scene where his mother screams, I hope they beat you until you leave <laughs> you know she because she's railing against the fact that he's against nature which is sort of interesting because this accusation of him being gay is not i mean later on it sort of gets proven that he's at least bisexual or something but you know it's not substantiated at the point in which they're really raining all of this hellfire on him for it all you really know is that he's there to, as you said, fix things that need to be fixed in order for them to do their jobs as farmers. They'll invite him over, they'll feed him until he fixes a thing, and then they're just right at his throat. This film was really well done because it's just so horribly horrendous. It was such an unpleasant film to watch, and yet it was really interesting. Like, I would recommend watching it, but like, God, I mean, it's just vicious. On Letterboxd, somebody said that this is Michael Haneke's favorite film, and <laughs> I absolutely believe that. Whether that's true or not, you know what you're in for if you go into it knowing that this could quite possibly be Michael Haneke's favorite <laughs> film, because it's it's ugly. There's some bunch of small moments that are horrible. Uh, if you don't want to see animal violence, heads up. <laughs> There is a lot of it in this. Yeah, you you definitely see how the sausage gets made in this movie. Literally. And I, one of the, <laughs> the more horrific scenes to me, I mean, and there's many, believe me, there's many, many horrible scenes in this film, is where they cut up this pig and they, that Georg guy, who's this big bully, he picks up the head of the pig and he brings it over to the piglet pen 
and he shoves it in there and like makes noises and all the little piglets are sort of like sniffing at it and then he's like ha 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 and he walks away from it and i was like that is just the most horrible thing i mean i'll i eat meat but that's the shit that makes people turn vegan so if you want to be vegan maybe watch this movie and that's not even the worst thing that happens (laughs) it's honest i think if you eat meat you owe it to yourself to watch this movie because this is where your meat comes from (laughs) Hopefully with less serial killer vibes. <laughs> <laughs> a little too Hannibal Lecter. Any final thoughts on this movie? It's the pointed finger of justice towards rural German attitudes uh, as, as a very clear stand-in for old German thinking. Without all the machinery, I mean, like, this could have been anywhere from, like, the 1920s to the 1400s in some ways. <laughs> Um, but the, yeah. the biggest tell of it being 1969 is there's scenes of this airplane going above the town that everyone sort of pointedly notices and then goes right back to their small-minded attacking of each other. That and, and the patterns and the prints on everyone's clothing it looks really funky. <laughs> but it's shot in black and white, so you can't tell. And you get a really tiny roll from uh, Hannah Scheigler in there, and her hair is so 60s. But it's interesting then to go from this sort of railing against old people to the next film, which is... Uh, a celebration of youth. <laughs> Which rails against old people. Yeah. <laughs> I'm an elephant, madam. Directed by Peter Zadek, who is also not a big name in New German cinema. But this movie kind of stood out from the pack as a, as a real like uh, you know, generation gap. We're young and we're here and we're, we're taking over sort of middle finger at the status quo kind of movie. A soundtrack by Velvet Underground. I'm Waiting for the Man is used really well in this movie, repeatedly easily one of the best soundtracks we've had so far yeah so many of the best moments in this movie are just the matching up of image and this great rock and roll of the era i would be surprised if wes anderson ever saw this movie but it really has that feel of i know rushmore isn't one of your favorite movies but this movie definitely has that sort of combination of you know 60s rock and and you know showing the the when a character comes on the screen for the first time and like puts the name up on the screen right. along with this garage rock music and it really just has that playful youthful attitude that Wes Anderson loved so much in in movies of this era and picked up and used in a lot of his movies I can see it totally but yeah it's these seniors in high school who are uh you know, a month away from graduating, and Rule, our main character, who's a real dissatisfied, rebellious type, who thinks everything that the teachers has to say is garbage, and the filmmaker clearly is on Rule's side because it makes the, all of these teachers look like complete idiots. You know, the, the students will ask the history teacher to explain to them what's going, what, all, the, all these revolts they see on TV. Can we talk about that? What 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 is that all about? Can you Can we talk about that a little bit? And the, the teacher says, oh, we'll talk about that a week from Wednesday. Right now we have to talk about this old poet who has no bearing on anything uh, that's going on in your lives right now. And it sort of alternates these really lively scenes of these kids in the streets. You're protesting, just going up against these 
cops and we, we don't even know exactly what they're protesting. Crosscut with these stodgy teachers up on the uh, the balcony of the school, sipping their tea very delicately, and you know, standing in, in you know, very symmetrical patterns. And you know, you see the the principal of the school like analyzing these figures. Every every student is just a number on a chart. It, it's hard to know how to how to summarize the plot because there isn't a whole lot of plot. It's just a lot of juxtapositions of kids being kids and the older generation just having no clue about what's going on and having nothing that they to offer these restless kids. And at a certain point, the movie takes a real turn. There's a swastika shows up on the side of the school and rule takes credit for whether it's not even clear whether he did it or not but you know, just everything that gets stirred up by this incident of the swastika being painted on the school like he's loving it and uh the movie sort of cuts to this documentary footage of what must be an actual similar incident where you get people on the streets reacting to the swastika that's been painted on on this wall the most damning part of this movie is where you have these you know old people who are reacting to this confrontational swastika it almost seems like just being reminded that they have this nazi past is an offense to them it's not even so much what the swastika represents it's the fact that these young people have had the gall to remind them that they have this history that they're not reconciled with that they have you know have not been able to deal with yet. Right. It's the whole being offended at the term racist while not acknowledging that you're doing and perpetuating racist <laughs> ideology. I was this is definitely the most interesting part of this film that is otherwise pretty I don't know, like a bit flippant. It reminded me that the first half of this film reminded me of Wild in the Streets, which is a movie that we watched in our first ever episode of Cinema Sixty. And it was all about just like we're here, we're young, and, and screw old people. And that's a bit what they're kind of going for in the in the beginning of this. It's, definitely, it's really stylish and quick and, as you said, amazing soundtrack. And irreverent. There's a whole bunch of stuff that just doesn't make any real sense. Like, Rule dresses like a Native American and whatever that's meant to represent <laughs> at this protest and, and, you know, stands up to the police who also don't know really what to make of him. Or there's a part where he decides to just go full on anarchist. At first, the students kind of think that he's on their side as far as organizing against the teachers and the teachers think he's being a smart ass. But he sort of, as the film progresses, he just gets more and more anarchistic and, pointless he's just sort of doing things for the sake of it because everything's meaningless and there's some line where he like he like shows up inside of a display case and he says prove me objective i'm not a kiwi and and everyone's like wow that's really <laughs> you really blew my mind man you know like <laughs> in a weird way it, the whole film feels super tame considering it's kind of boils down to a protest film and i wasn't sure if that was just because it's german or because it doesn't really have that much to say. It certainly has a lot of energy, but as far as its point, or at least a, as a, an ideology behind it, besides just youthfulness, I didn't really get that there was much here. And most of the protests that these students are doing are so ordered <laughs> and just well-organized to the point that they will protest for a very specific amount of time, like the teacher says something, and then they all in unison will repeat like uh you know student rights and then 
immediately the teacher's like, okay, quiet down. And everyone just immediately is quiet. <laughs> you know, they yeah. don't, they're like, that's fine. And then someone tries to like, re I think rule starts to, to try to restart the chant and everyone shushes him. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, then, yeah, it takes a, that turn where it gets into this sort of documentary footage, which is really interesting. And I could have in a way watched a whole film of just that it reminded me actually a bit of William Klein's stuff in the far from Vietnam film that we watched, but we didn't discuss yet officially on cinema 60, but you see all of these old people, as you said, getting offended about just having seen the symbol Then one person walks by and says, reminds me of better days, you know, which is also sort of mm. creepy. And then you get rule who basically starts to yell about all sides is bullshit and um, it's not my fault. I wasn't even alive. Why should I feel bad about it? Which is interesting whether or not you feel that he is responsible. I mean, it, it's this sort of ridiculous burden of country. I mean, like it is a, a genuinely interesting topic to sort of think about whether or not you feel like, screw you, Nazi. <laughs> well, and it's also not... If it is, in fact, Rule who painted it, it's, he hasn't done it as a symbol of hate at all. It's painted on the school, and I think the idea is that he's pointing out how fascist all the old ideas are and the way that the school is run and, and how, you know, just being numbers on a grid or, you know, having to learn out of these textbooks that have nothing to do with anything that's going on in these kids' lives. Part of the point is just what you were saying that the you know you've got these rebellious kids who sort of have this model of revolt that they see on the TV and the, you know it's all so organized and it seems ineffective and rule is also like he's lashed out at the older generation but he's also like you know he becomes this manic anarchist because the kind of fights that his friends are putting up are pretty pointless like they're too managed they're too tidy they're too all in accordance with the way that things are supposed to be done, which is exactly what's wrong with this country. And and so his ultimate act of rebellion is to get himself expelled a, a week before he graduates from high school and can be free of all this nonsense. See, it's funny. I kind of felt like the swastika was more just showing how politics can be more circular than it is linear. And that he sort of is this true anarchist and that he sort of fights for both the right and the left, as it were. It's like his dip into fascism and sort of seeing the power that he gains from it. That this, the, like it stops the entire town square and everyone's standing there screaming. And then there's that scene where the, the, the I mean, it opens on this Jewish guy yelling at him saying, you killed millions of my people and rules saying, well, it's, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't do it. I don't know, it felt like a rule I wasn't terribly sympathetic towards in that moment. No, and in general, he's not positioned as a role model for youth of today. I mean, I think he's able to uh, point out some valid criticisms about the generation gap and how both sides have some big problems. But he himself is just too antisocial, too uncontrolled to be any kind of hero to anybody. That's part of what I really liked about this movie. And it was just so stylish, it was just so lively it was just fun to watch yeah i thought this was sort of it had moments of greatness but overall it didn't totally come together for me but i also was just kind of creeped out by <laughs> by rule there's those weird sort of semi-sex scenes too that felt quite rapey yeah that's an uncomfortable moment when rule finally gets his girlfriend billa to sleep with him he like 
yells to everybody, to all his friends who are just gathered out outside. I just fucked Bella. <laughs> Definitely hate him in that moment. And he's like, and it sucked because she was a virgin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, she was. It was no good. But she'll get better. Well, but see, like, that kind of stuff is like, not that I, I think that's great, um, but just like it, the, the actress looked uncomfortable. Because she kept squirming. Like, the scene is basically that it's a naked, the naked woman and naked guy. He's sitting in a chair and she's on his lap. And he's sort of taking her underwear off. But he's also, his fingers are going in all sorts of places. (laughs) And it just, she just keeps shifting and stopping him from basically penetrating her. So it's just sort of like, it just feels really uncomfortable to watch. Like, I don't know that that's the case, but it was definitely, I don't know, unnecessary, I guess, at, at, at nicest. Yeah. Parts of this were, were good. I mean, like, him talking about being a Kiwi, I thought was great. <laughs> <laughs> he also has a, a moment where he makes a face at a windmill, so. That scene with Donovan, the professor plays Universal Soldier, and mm-hmm. everyone just listens to, like, basically the entire song. Were they making fun of Donovan? I think so. I, I, think I had that same were. question, though. And I'm kind of like, that's my boy Donovan. Come on. He's made of <laughs> flowers. I mean, I think what it was just pointing out was that this is such a passive form of rebellion. Just to have a teacher play this song right. in a classroom is, you know, just sort of invalidates the whole spirit behind it to, to have it in that setting. Yeah, the stuff with the teachers trying to appeal to their students was pretty great. I enjoyed this movie. It definitely is very flawed, but I got a huge kick out of it. Yeah, so that's the early days of New German cinema, which really flourished in the 70s and early 80s. So in the 60s, we didn't get anything by Wim Wenders, who became one of the biggest names in the movement. There are actually quite a few fairly well-known female directors who are associated with New German cinema. Margareta von Trotta, who was actually married to Volker Schlondorf for a long time, actually. One of the most well-known of the new German directors, Marianne and Julianne, and other films, a real kind of feminist icon. Wolfgang Peterson is associated with the movement, and he did some pretty interesting stuff in the 70s before he became a big Hollywood director. He did Das Boot in 79, and then he went on to do, like, I don't know, Perfect Storm, and Air Force One and a bunch of real Hollywood garbage. You know, a lot of these filmmakers now are not doing anything terribly interesting. They sort of became what, it's sort of what happened with some of the, no, actually I'm going to say it didn't happen so much with the the French New Wave directors that they sort of became the types of directors that they were critical of in the start. A lot of them, even if their movies weren't as uh, vivacious anymore or connecting with audiences, they're still sort of always trying new things and being experimental. But a lot of the new German cinema folks, Volker Schlondorf in particular, and I don't know, Werner Herzog is still following his own path. Wim Wenders is kind of Hollywoodized himself a bit, but they all sort of became these sort of mainstream directors that they were fighting against initially. So that's kind of interesting. All of the memes about Herzog going from trying to, to shoot actors on set to crying over Baby Yoda is one of my favorite things. I just saw him on a Rick and Morty episode. Really? <laughs> <laughs> 
But yeah, I think New German Cinema is interesting because it really was a fresh start for West German Cinema. I mean, there's really nothing to watch until these young filmmakers decided, hey, we've got to jumpstart this industry. We've got to start making some interesting films and making Germany uh, relevant again. It's a new wave that's actually not running counter to much of anything of note. It's just a fresh start. And I think that's why maybe a lot of these filmmakers ended up kind of mainstreaming themselves as they went along because their goal was never to be making films for just a, a select few. They, you know, they just wanted to be the new film industry of Germany. Whenever you throw a bunch of money at young upstarts with artistic inclinations, it's, I feel like it's really rarely a bad idea. <laughs> I mean, I found this all really uh, fascinating. This certainly made me want to check out German directors that I've been ignoring. <laughs> certainly, you can see why the front runners are the front runners to me. I mean, like, I think that Fassbender, his film is fantastic. It's, it's stylish and it's weird and it's really unique. Herzog also was just had that just perfect degree of humor that ran through it. And, you know, the rest of these, I just, they were very uh, memorable. I mean, this felt like one of our best and most consistent seven film watch uh, for an episode in a way. Like, there's really nothing that I couldn't stand. Even the first film, I mean, I, I don't like it, but it doesn't mean it's not a good movie. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. It's not my kind of movie, but it was interesting. And the whole thing is interesting. And, and these other films, I mean, despite the, just how, shockingly violent <laughs> and ruthless and, and mean they all were but that was exactly what was great about them I mean like I felt like watching this now I was like boy I, I wish we had a movement like this right now in America you could almost just you know dub this in English it would it would make as much sense currently <laughs> yeah well I think there's a whole lot of self-loathing in uh, in American society right now so maybe the time is ripe for this kind of finger pointing maybe this is <laughs> vaguely cultural but it's like i'm down with that german way of just bluntly telling it like it is <laughs> you know like i get a lot of satisfaction out of being able to sort of look someone in the eye like that and say hey you're terrible and you're 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 killing society <laughs> yeah. you know like it's yeah. not something you can really say to any one person uh, who isn't a public figure, I suppose, but I think it's worthwhile. I don't think that at, none of these films feel like they're going after the end of anything. They're trying to put a stop to something that they see perpetuated continually and has, and has been sort of unconsciously perpetuated, which is, as we mentioned, a, a theme in every single one of these, this idea of unconsciously either perpetuating violence or ignoring something that you are doing to other people and not ever naming it. And I think that the only way to break that kind of cycle is to name it, is to bring it out to say, uh, this is a problem. <laughs> this right here is an issue. And whether you're doing it on purpose or you're doing it because this is the society that you've built for yourself within your little weird bubble and <laughs> in your fish tank, you know, it's like this needs to stop. I think that's commendable. And it, it furthers the conversation. You know, it's not a matter of just saying like you're horrible, period, goodbye. It's a matter of this is terrible and we need to and we, we have to stop this in order to fix it. It's a continuation of something. It's it's an it's an attempt to step forward 
uh, in society as they have in these films. I love the selection of movies, and I think you're right. This is possibly the strongest we've had so far. I, I just want to keep watching new German cinema. This definitely didn't burn me out on it at all. Like, after watching all those Sophia Loren movies, I didn't say, oh, I've got to watch all the rest of them now. But but now I, I really, I just, I want to watch every Fassbender film I haven't seen, every Herzog, just, just all of them, all these movies I've been reading about. It's all good stuff. Agreed, 100%. Yeah, I can't believe we have to wait until we do Cinema 70 to talk about the rest of these <laughs> the movies by these people. <laughs> I want Cinema 70 so bad. <laughs> go, 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 You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.